What a powerful name it is. Death could not hold him. We're looking at a text today in the next couple of weeks where uh, Paul deals uh, very specifically with uh, man alive, the implications of death not being able to hold him. Now, I think we're having some tech problems. Oh, there we go. We welcome uh, 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 Bella uh, uh, Renee Carstairs this week, and uh, uh, we celebrate life around here. Nothing better than the name of Jesus, but I'm going to tell you next to that, uh, a new, new life. So we uh, congratulate mom and dad and are thrilled uh, for, for this, uh, this arrival. All right, we're jumping back into uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, I had shared with y'all that uh, I went to Virginia, my wife and I and our youngest daughter, and we were out there for the Christmas, Christmas holidays, and uh, uh, we had a great time. Watching those grandkids, this is something because they live out town. First time we were with grandkids at their place at Christmas watching them open presents. Oh, man, is that fun. And just, just hanging with them, it was, uh, it was an absolute uh, delight and so much fun. We got to a New York Knicks games. My, my son-in-law, my, my grandsons and me, we invited the ladies. Now, I'm just going to put this out there. We had agreed to go to the Rockettes, the men, but that got canceled. So then we go to the New York Knicks and we invite the ladies. They decline the gracious invitation. I'm not sure what that says. But it was so much fun. But we had planned that for about five or six months. We had been looking forward to it. And uh, we were living day to day for those six months. We were involved in every day and finding joy in every day. But there was this anticipation of this holiday with them that gave us an element of joy. Anticipating this was, was fabulous. Now, that's what Paul's talking about in our text today. He's going to launch into this extensive explanation of this great day that's ahead. When we get resurrected, when Jesus comes back. Now, this has astonishing implications. This day when Jesus comes back, extraordinary implications. The power of Jesus and death could not hold him has extraordinary implications for us. And Paul writes this because his hope is that as we look forward to what's eventually going to be, that it will encourage us today. And we're still going to live today. We're still going to live with the issues of today. But our anticipation of what this means that's coming impacts us now. Because we know it's coming. Now, there are three paragraphs we're going to look through today. There's a lot of text. We're going to move through it quickly. So if you have questions, come see me later in your life group. You'll have great places to talk about this. But I think three major ideas, and we're going to pull it apart by these major ideas, and they're linked, you'll see. But the first one is if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, here are the implications for us. 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, we're 15 chapters into Corinthians. This is the first real doctrinal issue he's addressing. We got 14 chapters of, you got the death and resurrection of Jesus right, but me and you are not living very well. When we get here, we're finally to one doctrinal issue. Some of them are denying our resurrection eventually and saying it's not going to happen. And that's what he's correcting here. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? That's what Paul's answering in this chapter. He's refuting that. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is vain, and, and we are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now it makes a long list here and we're going to walk through it. So if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our preaching, what I'm doing right now is pointless. Now I've committed a fair bit of my life I can't believe the privilege you all give me of talking about God. Other than when I'm in a conversation with somebody who's yet to believe, and you can see that it's starting to make sense, the gospel, that's my favorite thing in the whole wide world. Next to that is being with you all and worshiping. I still can't believe you let me do this. But if Christ didn't actually rise from the dead, this is a waste of my time. And though you listen to me for 20, 25 minutes on a Sunday morning, <clears throat> I think I average 15 to 20 hours a week preparing for this. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you understand for me, this is very personal. I have wasted at least 20 hours a week for 35 years. Now, if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And see the linkage between Christ's resurrection and ours. This is a key point in all of 15 here. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And all of our faiths are worthless. And if Christ has not been raised, then your preaching is in vain and your faith is vain. It's pointless. Do I need to explain any further? We're falsifying God. We're liars. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and our faith is vain and we are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised and we're still in our sins. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That puts us in a really bad position with the Almighty God. And those who have died, if Christ wasn't raised, those who have died are already experiencing that eternal punishment if Christ hadn't been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and, and you are still in your sins. And then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
Now, just, I'm just going to say this right here. I think this is going to have reference for a verse later. Just remember his reference and allusion here to people who have died in Christ. Everybody heard it? But I, I think it's going to help us understand the text a little bit later. So, anyway. And we are to be pitied more than anyone else. Any of you have friends that kind of pity you because you claim you love Christ? Do you have friends? I mean, I have friends that they don't come out and say it, but they just think I'm a dope. Oh, God became a human being. Now, they're nice. And all this time you commit to this and the choices you make in life. I've had folks tell me, and I've read about other folks that say, even if there's not a heaven and we don't rise from the dead, this was a good life. No. We're morons. We are stupid if Christ didn't rise from the dead. That's what Paul says. So many in the world that we grieve for and have pity for, here's what Paul says. I don't think it's hyperbole here. I think he means it. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, we actually are at the top of the list of people that ought to be pitied. Now, you know where this is going, right? You know where we're headed? I've talked and we've talked a little bit about, and you want to talk about this more, I'm going to use these terms, may not make sense, but come talk to me, progressive Christianity, uh, um, post-evangelicalism, where they are diminishing the truth, in my estimation, of some of these doctrines. Dangerous, dangerous stuff. He died, he rose from the dead. That's what we already dealt with in 15th. That's the theology we will die for around here. The rest of the stuff we're going to talk about, it has relevance. Jesus died and he rose from the dead. That's what we are tethered to. And we will never ever move from that. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins and then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we in Christ we have in this life only, we are all most to be pitied. Now again, you understand the implications is Paul actually believes that Jesus was raised. And if I was just going to deal with this paragraph, what we would do is turn this around and look at this. Preaching is in vain. But if Christ was raised from the dead, and please hear me say this is my conviction talking about God, just not what I do here, but anybody talking about the truth of God, it might be like the most important thing in the world. I'm not just talking about what I do on Sunday mornings, but just when all of us preach, when we talk about the truth of who Jesus is and just go down that list and turn it around. Now, here's where he goes. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he's going to go to, but Jesus did rise from the dead. You know what the third big idea is going to be when we're going to go, we're going to look at here in a second? Then he goes back to, but if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. We already dealt with that. You can see he's trying to help people understand how core this is to our convictions about Jesus. But Jesus did, of course, rise from the dead. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. It's going to be a great day. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. 
The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. We got a lot of pronouns there. When all the things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him. We'll walk through this. Uh, uh, who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. I don't know if I've ever read the sentence with so many pronouns that it gets confusing, but we're going to pull this apart. But Jesus rose from the dead. And here's the big idea for Paul in this whole text. Because Jesus rose from the dead, he's linking Jesus' resurrection to ours. Our resurrection is guaranteed. Now, it's Jesus first, we got this, and then us. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits. He could have just said first, but he says first fruits. I think it's an added nuance of meaning. When you go to a harvest, the first fruits are the ones you first pick. Like, if you're harvesting oranges, the first oranges you pick off the tree are the first fruits. But there's a bunch of other oranges and everybody knows it. It's the guarantee that those other oranges are going to get picked. And that's what Paul is alluding to here. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is a euphemism for what? Dead. They died. So there's already people, as Paul writes to Corinth, in Corinth, that love Christ, that are dead. Again, this is the second illusion here, and I think it's going to help us as we move through the text when we get to a, one of the most complicated, I think, texts in all the Bible to interpret. It's coming. I'm trying to raise your anticipation. <laughs> but I think these, these are kind of hints of where I think Paul is most likely going with that, that tough text. Uh, verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. The way... Adam influenced us is the way Christ influenced us. For as in Adam, all die. With Adam, he explains this much more fully in Romans. We inherited the propensity to sin and also the legal standing. Adam was our representative. For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection for the dead. For as in Adam, all die, so also Christ shall be made alive. We have that same sort of connection with Jesus that we have with Adam with very different results. From Adam comes death. From Christ comes life. Now, I want you to just look at this word here. And I've talked about post-evangelicalism because they will use this verse 22 to promote universalism, the idea that everybody gets saved. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ uh, shall all be made alive. Now, it feels like it could be everybody, doesn't it? Let's keep reading. Paul actually clarifies it. This is why actually reading the whole thing is helpful. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and at his coming, when he returns, those who what? Yeah, those who treasure Christ, those who get it. Those who don't treasure Christ are not going to experience what we're experiencing. And Jesus is going to reign supreme. He's going to conquer all enemies. Now, this is hard for us, I think, even to imagine in this day and age. I was reading about what's going on in the Ukraine this early this morning, and uh, you guys are probably following that a little bit. And I, I don't know if you noticed, you young people, you probably read a little bit about those of us who are older. We've seen some bad people in the world. There's some evil folks out there done really nasty stuff, and there's still some nasty people out there. <laughs> 
I think we lived with it so long, I think sometimes we can become a little calloused, but not just na national leaders, heck, parents, friends, work associates. There's, there's bad stuff out in the world, but Jesus is eventually going to conquer this, conquer them, and he's finally going to destroy death. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He's talking about human. I think he's talking about disease, all the problems in the world. He's also talking here about spiritual forces. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Those San Francisco fans got to be exhilarated. And some of you remember our former pastor, Drew, he's a diehard San Francisco fan. So I sent him a text this morning that said, hey, which it wasn't always all true. It was kind of true. I've really liked the Niners forever. It's, I, but now that they're winning, I'm a bigger fan. But we're talking about Jesus. Those folks, I bet they went nuts, those Niner fans last night. We're talking about a victory that the Super Bowl, the World Series, whatever, awards are done, doesn't even compare. That's what Paul's saying we ought to be looking forward to. For he must reign until he has put all enemies, every enemy. Now, some people look here and for a chronology, you know, how about, what does it say about the tribulation and the millennium and all that stuff? Let me answer it right here. Nothing. <laughs> this ain't his point here. Yeah, so you can, people say, oh, well, this may be referencing, no, that's not his point. His point is Jesus is going to come back, we're going to get resurrected, and everything's going to get put right, and the last enemy to be destroyed is? Yeah. Now, if you're younger, from my experience, completely anecdotal, this just means last year. Though I'm old. I had somebody correct me. I said, man, I'm getting old. And they looked at me directly, and I appreciate this. You are old. <laughs> I have people my age refer to uh, this age as middle age. I'm like, I don't know that many people, 126. <laughs> this is not actually the middle. Uh, so I'm just telling you, you young people right now, I just assume it means less because it meant less to me even at 40 than it does now. I'm in that place, my doctor's here, he can affirm, stuff just doesn't work and breaks and you got all these tests you got to do to see what this stuff, I'm like, I read about this, I've dealt with all these old people that did this stuff. Unless Jesus returns, this body's going to die. And I'm stopping to pause on it because we live in a culture where it feels like we don't think about it. Meatloaf, one of my favorite musical artists. <laughs> and I get I just get abused by the staff. <laughs> 11 years older than me, just died this last week. Death has not been conquered. I shared with you before Christmas, Julie and I have some friends with a uh, six-year-old little boy that had cancer and it was not going to be good. It didn't look unless God took some direct action. Day before Christmas, he died. Mm -hmm. 
Go Rams. Let's win the game. Won't it be great if we win and beat Tampa Bay? Oh, how happy are we going to be? We get home field advantage. Oh, this is a big deal today, guys. I hope you're paying attention. One day death will be conquered and we'll be no more. The grave couldn't hold him. You remember singing that? There's power in that name. There's a day coming. Are we there yet? But it's coming. Paul wants us looking forward to what will be because his conviction is if we can look forward to that, it ought to have a greater impact than going to see your kids for Christmas. And we live today, face today, but never without the knowledge and the hope of what is to be. And Jesus will hand everything over to God. Now, we're going to get into all these pronouns, right? And I'm going to walk through it quickly, and I'll give you what I think he's alluding to here, and it gets confusing. We've talked at different times about how in healthy organizations everywhere and in the church, in homes, there ought to be complementary roles and relationships. It's rooted in God. When God, but Jesus submits to the Father. That's where this idea of submission is a healthy thing. And that's what Paul's trying to point out here as he talks about this day. He's going to pull this theology apart a little bit. The last thing to be to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Who's that his there? Jesus. You with me? For God the Father has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted. Who do you think that he is there that's accepted from being under the, the feet of Jesus? The Father. Paul's trying to explain this, but it is plain that he is accepted, God the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, under Jesus. God the Father made this happen. But when all things are subjected to him, Who's there? Mm, it's a tough one, but I think it's Jesus. Then the Son will also, will also be subjected to him. Or it could be the Father. That's the toughest pronoun right there. And if I got English teachers, just correct me and I'll fix it for the second service. <laughs> Who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. And I love this phrase, right? Because we're talking about the consummation, the beginning of the new kingdom, that God may be all in all. Now, this is not pantheism. Pantheism is that idea that God's in your chair. He's in this blacktop. He's in my shoe. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is all the stuff that keeps us from seeing God fully will be destroyed. I hope the Rams win. I have forfeited any commitment and loyalty to the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> they are not in my life. I have washed my hands of them. I hope they win. And I will be happy. It will last 12, maybe 15 seconds. There's a day coming when God is just everything. Can we really envision it? I don't know how to illustrate it. 
But think about the thing that makes you most happy, where you've had the most joy, and then just exponentially multiply that. Life is hard. We got stuff. We're dealing with the issues of today. We're not ever going to pretend we're not. What Paul's saying, and this is, we're going to get to it. God, maybe all in all, and I just wrote this out because I wanted to be clear in case I started rambling and talking about the rams. God's reign will be complete and obvious to all. There will be nothing to impair our full experience of God. That's what he's talking about. This is what drives Paul. Ought to drive evangelicals. When we die now, our bodies are separated from the spirit and they go to heaven. But there are really only three New Testament texts that deal with it. That's not, it's true, thief on the cross is one of them, be with me today in paradise. There's not much written about what we would call the intermediate state. The hope of scripture is the return of Christ, the consummation of the kingdom, how great this is going to be. We're going to get new bodies. There will be no doctors. For those doctors, I'm just telling you, you better make a pilot dome now because in that state, nobody is going to need you. And you're not going to need money either. God's got that all covered. So, <laughs> This is where my wife warns me, don't ever say anything spontaneously. And then it comes out of my mouth and I go, that was probably a good warning. Anyway, <laughs> back to the last one here. The last one, he's going to go back. Next week, he's going to start pulling apart more specifically. What does that body look like the next two weeks? And we'll be talking about that. It's as clear a picture as, as we get. Now he jumps back to, but what if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead? Now, here's why I think he keeps going back there. The Corinthian church is not struggling with the core theology. They're just not being very loving. It's the simplest way to put it. We had 14 chapters. Why 1 Corinthians 13? I should say we had 13 of the 14 chapters that were about them not being loving. In the middle, at the end of that, we have 1 Corinthians 13 near the end of this. That's why that chapter on love is there. But this is what I hope we'll hear. They have the basic facts of the gospel down. When we looked at that text last week, Jesus died for us and rose from the dead. You get to verse 11, the end of it, and Paul says, you accepted this. Their heads get it. They're just not living like they get it. There's an inconsistency their theology with their expression in Paul's mind. Any relevance for evangelicalism in America today? I think there might be. And I'm really worried about, well, I'm, I'm just as worried about the folks that don't have the right doctrine. Right? Not having the right doctrine. Paul's saying you can have the right doctrine and still not be good. And that's where he's going to end this section. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Now, this is the tough part. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, uh, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up. Here's how he's going to end this section. 
Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Amen. Let's go home. <laughs> He's got concern for these folks. Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead. Baptism is pointless. That's his big idea here. We're going to pull apart, I think, one of the most difficult texts in all of Scripture. I will give you at the end of my explanation my convictions, which I hold with 67% confidence. Does that make sense? Am I 100% confident my view is right? But I got 67%, which is more than 50. It's 17 more than 50. Baptism... <laughs> is where those who treasure Christ get baptized. Immersion is the typical, that's what they did in Jesus' day. You put you in the ground. What that symbolizes are actually dying with Jesus and being put in the tomb with him. And then you come out of the tomb because you are resurrected. And so Paul is just saying here, why do people even get baptized? That's the big idea. Now there's other things he says in there that are complicated that we're gonna pull through. Please hear the big idea. Baptism, we should never do it. It's foolish. So here's what he says again. What do people mean by being baptized? So we're going to take it in English, and I'll give you the first explanation that's the most obvious. What do people mean? That's a tough one, I think, to pull apart. By being baptized on behalf of the dead. And he says that twice here. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? So we're wrestling with what does it mean on their behalf? behalf. I think the easiest way to read this in English, and this is a basic principle of interpretation, usually the simplest interpretation is the right one. Let me tell you, there are exceptions to that. This would be it. This would be one of them. Some postulate, some of the commentators, that what's going on is people have died before they had a chance to get baptized, and, and somebody's being baptized for somebody who's already dead, but they love Christ. And I probably read 20 explanations of this this week. Um, there's some interesting ideas that people have on how to take this. Uh, I think that would be almost impossible. We get a good share of our most formal theology from the Apostle Paul. Baptism is itself is a symbol for the person who has died. Its meaning is for them. I think almost assuredly if it was vicarious, oh, I didn't put it up there yet, this vicarious where one person is dying, being baptized in the place of another, I think Paul would have been really uncomfortable with that and, and, uh, and dealt with it. The second is that dead here is a metaphorical reference for the person being baptized themselves. And I'm just going to tell you grammatically and syntactically, I don't think that makes sense on behalf of. Twice. So you're ready for the 67% confident view? You are you comfortable when I say 67%? It's better than 50. Uh, and for me, I, I'm holding this view because it just has fewer problems than all the others. Does that make sense? Not because I clearly see it, but once in a while you just get to stuff and you go, man, it's just less cumbersome than all the others. Here's what I think is going on. Baptized on behalf of, in reference to, they're being baptized. Because his point again here is the certainty of the resurrection. He's referenced twice already to people that have died. Do you remember that? Twice. That's why I said, just notice this. 
I think what's going on is people are coming to faith and they're getting baptized and they have this hope of being reunited at the resurrection of Jesus' second coming with people who have died. On behalf of, not in an intermediary, and this is where if you'll allow me with the original language here, Greek, it's, I don't think it, it doesn't have to have in place of sense, which is the normal way we would take it in English. But they're thinking about people that have died, and they're going, I'm going to be resurrected with them, and we're going to be reunited. Now, that ought not be the prime focal point. The focal point is that we're going to be with God. But the reality is, look around at this group. We're going to be together in the eternal kingdom. Now, some of you haven't changed much since you were in high school. I'll recognize you. We'll talk about this more in the weeks, but I want you to be able to recognize me so I will paint a picture in the next couple of weeks of what I'm going to look like. But that's what I think Paul is saying here. Not in the place of, but they have the hope of being resurrected. And, and so our hope of being reunited with people that have died, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this is stupid. There's not going to be a reuniting. Baptism itself is just foolish. And living sacrificially is stupid. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? Why am I risking my life? Go to 2 Corinthians 12 and Paul makes a long list of the abuse. Shipwrecked, beaten, imprisoned. Why am I choosing this lifestyle? If Jesus isn't raised, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you. He inserts this one sentence there, which I have in Christ Jesus, my Lord. I love the benefit that you get in Jesus, but it came at cost to me and it came at risk. I have pride in that. But I die every day. I'm willing to make those choices because of the spiritual benefit, my being with you. Though there's some people that want to kill me, I'm willing to take that for your benefit. What do I gain? If humanly speaking, I fought with beasts, I, metaphorical reference to people at Ephesus, he's likely in Ephesus when he writes this book, that don't like him and hate him and are trying to, 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 to persecute him and to keep him from promoting the gospel. And then he goes on to this last point. Ah, I'm going to stop there again. Thank you for your giving to RCC. We got an annual meeting coming up on the 6th of February. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for being involved in the ministries. Thank you for being involved in people's lives. Thank you for the giving. Because Jesus did rose from the dead, I think it's a great place to invest. Thank you for that. But all this, and I referenced it last week, but all this is just foolish. And pleasure-seeking self-indulgence and overindulgence makes sense. Now, there's some appeal to this argument to me. Verse 32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? When I moved into our house, my neighbor is no longer there, but the neighbor across the street came out and he asked me what I did for a living. I told him he was a pastor. I was a pastor, and he started talking about the moral life he lives, though he doesn't love God. Now, somebody says that to me, here's where I go. I, I, I'm really encouraged by that. I think that's cool, but I'll just tell you it makes no sense. <laughs> if I don't have God in my life, I'm going to live really differently than I'm choosing right now. If I don't have the hope of heaven and hoping to get other people in heaven, mm, as selfish as I may appear to people to be, you ain't seen nothing if Jesus isn't in my life. <laughs> Those folks that live these moral lives without God, I'll just tell you. 
it doesn't make that much sense to me. I like pleasure. I would be pursuing any pleasure I could if it didn't have negative implications. So anyway, is that too much? Was this part of the stuff I should have kept to myself, Sonia? <laughs> Probably my wife. I hope she doesn't watch this. But of course, Jesus did rise from the dead. I want you to notice where he ends it. Quit living like he didn't. You got his death and resurrection right, but your behaviors are suggesting you're really not getting this. So to quote one of my favorite rock bands, the Eagles, in a song they wrote, get over it. Stop living that way. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Now are they deceived on the core elements of doctrine of the Christian faith? They are not. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. I think what he's saying there, when you all are in, in, acting inappropriately and not loving people, it's contagious. You start gossiping, you start doing all this stuff, it's contagious. In a body where people have these illicit motives and these illicit actions, and they start, it spreads. It's like a virus. That just came to me. But notice how he finishes. Wake up from your drunken stupor. They got the facts right about Jesus dying and rising from the dead, but they're not living like they really get it. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. The sinning isn't primarily theology they have to correct. Just not loving folks like Jesus asked them to love. Not loving one another. Some have no knowledge of God. Some there really, again, don't hear me saying that our behaviors are not a part of our doctrine. They are. They're not the core element of who God is. You remember him, Jesus, talking about loving your enemies? Anybody remember that part? <laughs> we got people here that aren't even loving the fellow believers. Good thing that stuff never happens at RCC. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame, when we behave and act inappropriately, at the core of it is not a full understanding of who this God who loves us and wants to use us to love others, that they might get the hope that when Jesus comes back, they would be resurrected with us. He loves these people. He writes in love. But he writes this because he's concerned about it. And they got a lot of the facts right. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to set a phone like Monday, 6 a.m. Oh, you young people, uh, uh, Monday, 1 p.m. after you're up. <laughs> and I'd love to have you just type in and then hit where you can set for every week. Jesus rose from the dead. So it repeats every week at a certain time when you're available. And my encouragement is just every week for as long as you want to just think about Jesus rose from the dead. What are the implications for me? I'm going to ask us all to pray. 
Ask God to give us a fuller experience of the reality of Jesus' resurrection. This is huge. He rose from the dead. The grave couldn't hold him. This, ah, this is power. There's going to be no more death. You guys have heard me say, death is the final enemy. Death is the biggest enemy. There's a bunch of enemies out there in the world. There ain't anything close to death. But it's going to be gone. Help us appreciate that more. Ask us to give us a greater anticipation of Jesus' return. Went to my oldest daughter's for Christmas, and in March, we're going to my middle daughter's home and see her family. Do you think I'm anticipating that? I actually want my anticipation of Jesus' second coming, and I understand it's been 2,000 years. That makes it a little more challenging. I don't care. I don't care that it hasn't happened yet. Because I talk to people and they go, well, when is it going to happen? You're going to be on vacation in March. That's easier to think about. Sure. It's just not as important. How about we think about the important stuff? So ask God to give us a richer anticipation of Jesus' return. Why Paul writes this is this will make us more Christ-like today when we're thinking about that day. He said last week, he worked harder than all the rest of the apostles. When you have this theology, it doesn't leave the passivity of, why is it the city even wait till Jesus comes back? And Rams is the best. Of no! It motivates us because we want other people to do that. And that's the last thing I'm going to ask you to do. Ask God to celebrate, help us love others that they might celebrate the significance of Jesus' resurrection for their own lives. You know, most of the friends and neighbors and work people we have, they don't even really know this day is coming. Maybe heard something, read something, but they don't really get it. Lord, help us to be invested in their lives. Around here, one of the things that really matters to us is helping people help people. Lord, fill us with this increasing love that we might help more get in a position where they love Jesus so that they, like us, can look forward to this day. Because read Revelation. Paul's not alluding to it here. It's not his point. It's a great day for us. It is really not good for those that don't love him. But he's put us here to help those folks. So.